This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. So I think that Jesus of Nazareth taught and behaved and presented himself in a particular way, which gave people over time, so not straight away, the people who first knew him didn't think, oh, he's fully human, fully divine person walking around in front of us. I don't think, I think they just thought he was a rabbi. But as they then reflected, as he went through his death and resurrection and ascension, which is the key, a key moment, and then were reflecting on everything that he had done and said and was, they then said, oh, we think that's been revealed to us, that he was fully human and fully divine, and then spent Hmm. time and prayer and, you know, trying to articulate that in stories, which then the early church built on, trying to work it out in terms of, this is what we believe, statements of belief. To go back to Jesus himself and the the church reflecting on it and saying what they said, but with Jesus himself, do you ever think, or maybe students ever challenge you with it? Like, why didn't Jesus just like Jedi mind trick everybody (laughs) and just say like, let let me give you some real knowledge Mm. and, you know, like zap Mm. it over. Like why this walking, Mm. talking, slowly revealing, looking back going, oh my goodness, it it was him all along, Mm. right? Why? The hiddenness of God in Christ. And which I think that is really challenging that, um, that it's, it wasn't very obvious back then, 2000 years ago, and it still isn't very obvious to people, is it? You know, we, Christians who want to tell other people the gospel, who want other people to understand that this is Jesus and this this is who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is the revelation of God. And, and we want people to understand that because of the fullness of life and the richness of life that we believe that God brings to them in Christ, um, we have a hard time trying to convince people that this this is true, you know, the truth, God forbid. And so why why does God operate in that way? Um, I think is really is a mystery, genuinely. It's something that we sort of wrestle with. So the mystery in the sense that that has also been revealed to us, that that's how God works. And that, so that tells us something about his character and also tells us something about ourselves and how he prefers to deal with us. So that's obviously a preference of God's, is to, mm. to relate to us in a way that isn't just coming in a kind of massive cloud of glory. Or So he hides himself in this human being who looks just like them. I mean, obviously, it doesn't look just like me, but looked exactly like they did and and spoke the same language that they did and and was really, you know, really fully assimilated in that sense, not alien at all. Whereas 
God in himself is is other to us. He isn't one of us. He's very different. And you get the impression reading the Bible that if he did come in in that kind of unadulterated way, unfiltered way, um, we we may not even survive it. We may not even survive the mm. encounter. I think that's what people were fearful of, weren't they? And before Jesus came, and then he comes in a way that we do understand. And um, I think there are lots and lots of different reasons for that. But I like the reason that Athanasius gives that the human beings had taken their eyes off God. So they ceased to be gazing on God and contemplating him. And they turned their attention to things of the world, you know, the created things. So it's like they were kind of looking down, as it were, instead of looking up. And so God, because mm. he's so gracious and merciful and kind, comes to where they're looking. So he stoops down to the level that they are, their eyes are already on and kind of gets in their eye line, as it were. That's my paraphrase of Athanasius. <laughs> and, mm. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's explain who Athanasius is. Okay, so is. Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria in Egypt in the fourth century, and his whole life really spanned the whole of the fourth century. Um, and he was a great thinker, a great bishop, bit of a controversial figure. So some people accused him of being violent towards his enemies, and he did have an arch enemy in Arius who was a presbyter um, uh, around his uh, the same time. And uh, Athanasius disagreed with Arius vehemently, absolutely vehemently, on this question of who is Jesus. And Athanasius was just adamant that this Jesus is fully, fully divine. He's one with God. He is, he is God as well. Um, and Arius was uncomfortable with that because he didn't think that God would stoop so low. You know, why, who is God to come down to our level? That doesn't seem godlike to me, or didn't seem godlike to Arius. So he wanted to separate God the Father from God the Son and make the Son much more part of the created order, whereas Athanasius said, well, yes, he is. He did come to be part of the created order, but he was still Lord of that created order at the same time. Yeah, this is oh, this is fantastic stuff. So, uh, this wrestling that took part uh, took place in the church. I, I often find so I teach Introduction to Hebrew mm. Bible Old Testament for. Um, mostly Christian students, not all Christian, but, um, and they so quickly want to jump to the Trinity mm. in everything, mm-hmm. right? So when we say, okay, Elohim is God's, right? In the mm. beginning, Elohim, God's, he created heaven. So there's already this conflict, let us make man in our image. They're like, oh, is that the Trinity? And I'm like, well, you know, let's, it took the church a couple hundred years to really, really argue this out and and, and lay it out. Although that it was there in the beginning, but they really sussed it out. And I think even the way you put it between Athanasius and Arius, um, which there was all these controversies about who was Jesus and what was he, you know, like what, what was he made of? And 
was he real? But that question of would God stoop? Would God do what he seems to have done in the text? And I think the great thing about Athanasius, they're, you know, they're arguing about what the, the, what we eventually will call the New Testament, what, what the apostles yeah. said, right? And so Athanasius keeps coming back, but that's not what was yeah. handed down. That's not what, what, what we're told in the story of the Gospels. Um, and so as you were speaking, what came to, sorry, I'm jumping islands to another thought that I'm connecting here that was so, that sparked in my mind was, I have only thought about the incarnation as the physical, like Jesus coming as a human. And until you said those words, I had never really put together that Jesus intellectually incarnated as well. He he reasoned with us, right? I mean, I love the phrase where he has to stop and go, what? what is the best way to compare the kingdom of God to the yeah. things you know, right? And then goes through a couple of comparisons. Um, and so I think that jumping to the Trinity or jumping to explanations, I guess you're a theologian by trade and living. You teach theological uh, students in, in a divinity school. What is the value of this wrestling? I mean, Jesus clearly thought it was yeah. worth wrestling intellectually. The And by intellectually, I mean spiritually and like embodied walking along. The, I mean the whole shebang, not just, in our mind hidden away in some other universe. But what do you, what do you see the value of intellectual wrestling in scripture? And then, and then how do you see that work out in your students? Yes. Like, can you, can you tell a story where you made, yes. you had to force? Yeah, to no, I, I like that question. And that's coming back to your original question of what, why, why does God come in hidden ways um, and tease out from us something really, rather than just, um, coming in a form that will overwhelm us and maybe convince us fully, mm. but probably overwhelm us. And I, I, I also, I am a theologian, and I also teach on spiritual formation, which deeply interests mm. me. And I have my, the first book I wrote was on discipleship, called the Disciple, um, because I'm also a pastor. And I think that, so I think there are two things in this that we, that we should pay attention to. One is what does it tell us about God, which is a fascinating question, and we could talk about that forever and ever, uh, about what does, that, what does the incarnation tell us about the character of God and who he is and how he deals with us. But the other is why would he do it that way for our sakes? What, what, what is he bringing out of us what's he forming in us in by doing things the way he does them and I think that this question of God working through time and over time you know taking far too long really to do the things that we want him to do and so frustrating us um is is a way is how he works in us to form us as people who I believe he is preparing for eternity. So the thing that what Genesis tells us is that the first human beings forfeited immortality. You know, they gave it up and he says, if you do this, you're going to die. And they don't die straight away. Um, so clearly they've just become mortal. They've embraced death in some way and death will come to them. Mm -hmm. And then the promise of Jesus is that that will be reversed and we will be inheritors of eternal life. So we'll have something that goes on forever and ever and ever. And 
really the idea of human beings going on forever and ever and ever is quite a horrifying concept when we think about what we're like, you know, right? <laughs> Most people you're sort of quite relieved by when you think, oh, well, they're probably not going to go on forever and ever. Um, but mm-hmm. so th- we need to become the people who can live in eternity. And I think that God deals with us in ways that forms us to become those those responsible, loving, self-sacrificing people that he wants us to become in order to um, to reign with him it, that's what it you know we're we're promised that um but in order i think to to live with god forever he wants us to learn to think to love to be able to sacrifice to um be patient to to cultivate what i don't know the gifts of the spirit uh the godly life um a Christ-like life, and and in knowing Him over time, and through the struggles of learning, is what forms that in us. I think, or something like that. I'd probably that's some of my thoughts. Yeah, well, I think you know if I if I were to pick a kind of an opposite of end of that, what you've just described. A, I should point out, since this is the Center for Hebraic Thought, that uh, we, we, I would say, like, everything you just described is from the Torah, <laughs> which Jesus calls them yeah. back to uh, and, and sends the Holy Spirit to make it happen. Um, but uh, B, I think if, if you look at something like the Quran's uh, retelling of the Garden of Eden, uh, it's, uh, you know, this view, which is actually comes from an, an older Jewish folklore of, that Satan is upset with the man because God has pulled him aside and revealed all the secrets of humanity to him or the wisdom right. of Solomon, the Hellenistic Jewish book, um, you know, that I have the, both the hidden and the revealed things have now been opened up to me. Um, and so there really is this kind of, you know, in the, in the tradi- the larger Jewish uh, Abrahamic faith tradition, uh, you could say there is this view that percolates up. Of course, it's all after Hellenism uh, where, uh, God can just zap your mind and show you everything at the same time. But yet that's not what we see. It's not what we saw in the Torah, right? Um, God slow jams them through the plagues and then asks them to do things and, and Jesus as well. And, and again, I keep coming back to this. What happens? What's so incarnationally important? You know, the Gospels could have had a story where Jesus just pulls everybody aside and he's like, look, fellas. Here's how it's going to go, which he does at certain times. Yeah. They still don't listen to him or understand anything that he says, right? But he 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 never just lays out exactly what Paul could say mm-hmm. later, right? Um, so, what is this something we should be doing in our lives or uh, calling other people to do to like call them to the struggle? Or because I I feel like even when I was a pastor full time, you know, when someone got themselves in some kind of a pickle morally mm-hmm. or personally. They're just like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, that's not <laughs> that's not how you got into this mess, and that's not how you're getting out, right? Um, so I wonder, is there some um, practical intellectual value to this wrestling, and how do we like? Should we be systematizing the struggle? Yeah, no, I I I kind of think should not perhaps systematizing it, but embracing it. I would say, and uh, we're both teachers. 
So we get the value of allowing someone to come to a conclusion, don't we? I, I find it fascinating that things that uh, my students don't get, you know, that I think I've explained brilliantly. Mm. And then <laughs> I'm like, that was <laughs> I, so I know good. that feeling well. I'm not going to top that. <laughs> and um, they don't get it. Well, well, I think they've got it. And then the ones that stay with us for a bit longer, you know, doing their whole bachelor's degree over six years because it takes because we do them all part time and they come back into my class mm. in the year five or whatever and put their hands up. Like, Sorry, could you just explain this? And I was thinking, we've done this. We've done this. Um, but you know, so and we know yes. it enough. I am familiar with that that exact. <laughs> and I know for yeah. myself, it's like how many times do I have to hear this before it sinks in? So we know that mm. that's what we're like, and and God is ha- seems to be happy to circle around with us until the penny drops, um, and until we have those aha moments, which. Because they are also exciting, aren't they? You know, when you get something or you think, I've got this for myself and I've seen, you know, I've seen this. And maybe you did hear someone else teach it to you 10 years ago, but you don't remember that because it's come to you as mm-hmm. something fresh and new and exciting and life giving. And revelation about God, it, that is how it comes. You know, it brings its own energy, doesn't it? And, and healing of oh my gosh this is who I am in the world then if God is this Mm. and God is speaking this to me then this that means I'm this person I'm valued and loved and forgiven you know and restored and so you you your identity is formed through hearing the voice of God but but it takes a lifetime to hear that voice Mm. and some people are are facilitators along that journey, aren't they? Like they, they'll say something to you that really lands and you're like, and you totally get it. Um, and it might be a sermon or it might be a prophetic word or it might be just an off-the-cuff comment. And then other things you can, you just ponder for years and don't get, yeah. but at some point maybe it, drops and 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 that's what what's so wonderful about the incarnation is that it started with a baby it, that it start well it started in mary's womb you know right at the beginning of life where we all start that tiny mm-hmm. minuscule little thing that nobody sees in a woman's womb and then and that jesus that the son of god was willing to go through that whole process and then as well embrace death for us. And so it's, that shows us how much God values the processes of time and, and growth yeah. and, yeah, development. And even as you say that, it strikes me that this is probably part of uh, or it's, it's supposed that the Philippian hymn in Philippians 2 mm-hmm. is some of the earliest worship mm-hmm. that we're getting uh, and, and that they focus on this exact exactly. point, that even being equal with God, he didn't view that something to be held mm-hmm. on to, uh, but poured himself. So uh, that pouring of himself, we call it mm-hmm. kenosis, mm-hmm. right? The, the Greek for pouring into the form of a human. Uh, so let me ask you a hard question. These were all <laughs> softballs now. Uh, the... Um, uh, is accommodation 
this is John Calvin uh, likes to talk about how God accommodates yeah. and God, he's, he lists to us like, we, yeah. you know, to babies. Is that the best term uh, or is there something, and for, forgive the, the roughshod nature of this, but is there something human about God? You said this tells us something about God. Is there something uh, human about God that he's not necessarily accommodating this? He's speaking to us as if, you know, um, this is the way it's supposed mm -hmm. to be. Uh, I, I feel like accommodating, and there's some sense of accommodating where it's almost demeaning. It's, well, since you can't understand these big, high, lofty things, but I wonder if there's some way in which this is the way that we're supposed yes. to understand uh, the struggle. The the we like to say my st or my students like to say, well, God is infinite; we're infinite. Right. And I say, well, that's fine, right. but this the biblical authors never make that distinction. They they don't they don't. That's not how they talk about mm -hmm. the God human relation. Um, so I wonder what what I just yeah. wonder your thoughts on. I just threw a lot says, of money at the says wall, the so Old Testament ahead. scholar. <laughs> 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 I've had these conversations, Drew, with Matt Lynch over many years. Yeah. Oh, I believe um, it. <laughs> I so my first was: Is there something human about God? I would say no. In that, well, as a kind of blunt question. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. And, but is there? something is it more than what you're saying um about accommodating and i think yes because the early church would talk about the fittingness of the son mm. to become human and i like that I like so that, yeah. that because that's a better that's a better midway isn't it between oh okay what a pain you know after go and do this for these wretched humans that it was and I think that's what I love about patristic theology um, that, so, that that some reformed theology seems to lose is is the idea of the passion of God to come to his people because they're his people made in his image mm -hmm. who need saving and and again, going back to Athanasius, he's clearly one of my favorites, is, you know, mm -hmm. Me too. talks about, well, of course, God would do that because he made us in the first place. How, how on earth would he leave us to our to this dreadful plight? And it was it was m most honorable and most fitting for God to come and save the people he'd made in the first place. And. And then Aquinas picks this up as well, this fittingness of the incarnation. And and it also, why it's such a lovely picture is because it also lends it, itself to you thinking, oh, yes, there was something about me that was made to be in union with God as well. You know, there was something about God where he purposed from the beginning of time that he would come to earth as one of us. But it also means there's something about human being that is fitting to be united with God. That's beautiful. And that's the gospel, really. So, um, so that's how I understand the union of the divine and human in the Son, um, is that, first of all, God purposed it from eternity. And secondly, that as we are made in his image, the image that Christ comes to bear, the perfect image, is somehow fittingly 
united, you know, with us in some way through him. So those are the kind of concepts that I would go to. I'm glad I asked that question because I've never, I, it's it's always niggled away at me, but I never had a good metaphor for it. But I think fittingness yeah. is, is beautiful. Okay, now for the very tough, toughest questions. Um, <laughs> what worship songs do you think uh, give us the worst view of the incarnation? Oh, Maybe we should start word. with best. I, well, someone, I had a, a, a former parishioner once that we were talking about what are the problems, how, do, how does the church end up with impoverished theology? And I was going to like Sunday school and Veggie Tales and you know, all right. these things. And then and then the, this parishioner said, I think most people just believe whatever yeah. the worship songs say. Uh, I, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, worship songs. So I've, I've come to think of worship songs as powerful theological tools, uh, which I don't know why that wasn't obvious to me before. No, absolutely right. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And we were, and I am a charismatic, as you know, so I'm subjected to many worship songs. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did I just say that? Did yeah. I say subjected to? No. no. I, no, I, I, as someone who spent a long time in the charismatic church, I, I feel that energy. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I enjoy many worship songs. Um, mm -hmm. So I... And maybe you don't have to no, name any songs. No, well, actually, some no. Kind of, some trite ideas that yeah. float around that kind of actually slowly or subtly deviate from what we re really yeah. should think about. The uh, so I have, I have three, actually, uh, which... Or oh, three yeah. ideas. But I, I will. I'll, I'll name the song because it, you know. Otherwise, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to. to I love it. To I explain. It. So uh, the first is I don't like the father turned his face away. I'm. I'm mm. not. I'm not on board with that. Um, and when I teach on the crucifixion, I love showing a, a painting by Albrecht Dürer of the crucifixion mm -hmm. which i know is very famous and um i love showing that painting because the son is it almost looks like he's sitting on the father's lap in a way you know he, the father's behind mm. him on the throne of god and the son and what i love about the painting is this the father's hands are underneath this son's holding him on the cross and holding him up as he's on the cross. So I, it, it, it's an amazing picture of what I think of when I think of the crucifixion of the father and the son together committed to this horrific death. Um, but the father is with him through it all and the Holy Spirit is resting on his head. So I can't sing worship songs that intimate that the father wasn't actually pouring his whole attention onto the sun at that moment of deepest suffering. Um, so that's one. Uh, I'm not too keen on a sloppy wet kiss as the... <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Did you? You didn't think I was going to say... <laughs> well, you know, there's an alternate version that I do, cuts that I do line know out, that. Right? I do know that. Yeah. And yeah. also, I'm actually... We have a tiny little church, Drew. Um, and I'm theologian in residence of our, in our tiny mm. little church, which I've, I feel is fitting, <laughs> um, if a bit grandiose. Uh, 
but uh but yeah so i would probably have vetoed that if the worship leaders had vetoed it off their own bat uh but i think we made a corporate decision that nobody was we are british after all so <laughs> even for it's, americans it's a bit it's, much it's a yeah. bit much yeah. good yeah. i'm glad to hear that and uh the other one that and i know it's not meant exactly like this but this is just another sort of i guess theological hobby horse of mine is the idea of um, I must decrease and he must increase. Oh, amen, um, sister. So I'm not with that. I Because I think it gets really taken out of context, um, well, out of the John the Baptist context, and mm-hmm. then applied to a sense in which in order for God to be, to be fully aggrandized in our midst we need to diminish ourselves and um i don't hold with that theology at all I, I, and the person who really helped me to articulate that is Catherine tanner who i think mm. does a wonderful job of talking about the non-competitive relation of god and humanity and that we come into the fullness of who we are through being filled with god and then we are then filled as human beings with his presence, but also come into the fullness of our own lives. So there's no there's no need for me to withdraw in order for God to become, to, to fill up the space. So it's just, if we use that language, I think it's uh, open to misinterpretation and, and a pastoral problem that actually as pastors, we spend most of our time, I think our biggest pastoral problem is trying to persuade people that they are deeply loved by God. Um, mm. And it's the hardest mm. thing for people to understand, actually, not the incarnation and the Trinity, which are impossible to understand. Mm. The hardest thing for people to understand is that they are deep, they are beloved of God. And, um, and the increase, decrease language, I think, cuts against that. So yeah, yeah, I I ran into that in a strange marketplace of ideas where it was a a, a somewhat Christian famous pastor who was speaking at our school who was talking about grace and he talked about grace to the extent where he said you actually don't have any identity in and of yourself. Right. It's all it's all God's grace and. I was so proud of a student. Here's here's one of those things where we're like, oh, okay, we did something right. The student stood up and said. This sounds a lot like Hinduism, like, you know, you're a drop that recedes back mm. into the ocean kind of, you know, thing. And I, yeah, I, I, I the more and less language, the, the deeper mm. and deeper, you know, shallower, I'm like, uh, these, these ring like mm-hmm. Gnosticism or other mm-hmm. Zoroastrian ideas. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Oh, um, the last one is, I, I, um, I, you're all I need. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. sorry. No, I just thought one more is, is the, is the, you're all I need, which is, a good sounds good, um, but actually, as we're on the topic of the incarnation, which we love, it, the what I love about the incarnation is the earthiness of it, and the realness mm. of it, and Jesus's relationships with his friends that he needed them. He needed them. He needed his friends. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? So, why would we then throw all of that out and make our Christian life about oh? well, God, you're all I need because he's given us each other. 
And I think he wants us Mm -hmm. to need each other and needing one another actually forms us, again, going back to spiritual formation, forms us as people. Um, And it's somewhat uncomfortable, you know. So we don't want to be deceitic, you know, just focusing only on the super spiritual and only on the divine. And I think that worship songs can, some worship songs tend towards that. So that's my final. There you go. You've got all my theological bugbears out of me. Well, Dr. Lucy Pepiat, thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance about the incarnation and worship songs. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.